He was a morbidly obese surgeon destined for an operating table and an early death. Now he's a rebel MD who is fabulously fit and fighting to make America healthy again. This is Stay Off My Operating Table with Dr. Philip Ovedia. All right, welcome back. It's the Stay Off My Operating Table podcast. Dr. O, um, gosh, I'm, your book is, I, I realize people can't buy it yet if they're listening to this immediately after we record this, but your, your, the book's coming out, what, uh, December? Uh, November 11th. November 11th, 2021, your book's going to be out. And what's it called? It's called Stay Off My Operating Table. Oh, clever. All right. So <clears throat> I'm reading the pre-pan- preprint. Uh, a couple episodes ago, we talked about uh, chapter three, where you said the system is broken. And I was rereading today and I was just, I was, I was struck by a story you told there at the beginning about Alex, this patient of yours uh, and his blood sugar problem. Would you just real quickly recount that story for us? And then I want to read a quote from that chapter and just have you comment on it. So I guess this, I guess the title of this episode is the system is broken part two. Yeah, unfortunately, we're going to have a lot to talk about over, you know, the course of this uh, podcast about why the system is broken. But, you know, the story I, I start off chapter three with, I think, is a very good example of what's wrong with the system. And I talk about a patient named Alex who I had done heart surgery on coronary artery bypass surgery. And it's now the next day after surgery, and I'm sort of doing my free, you know, check on all my patients with one of the nurses. And I noticed that Alex's blood sugar was exceedingly high. And I just couldn't figure out why that would be. And I was going through everything in my mind as I kind of walked down the hallway to see how Alex was doing. And as I opened the door and started to say good morning to Alex, I saw the plate of food that was in front of him. And it, it immediately became apparent why his blood sugar was so high. The heart-healthy diet, and I put heart-healthy in air quotes, that he was being served in the hospital the morning after his heart surgery was pancakes with low-fat syrup, a low-fat yogurt with granola, a cup of peaches, and then a small serving of scrambled eggs, which probably weren't even real eggs, a little sausage patty with it, and then the cup of orange juice that went with it as well. And that immediately makes sense why his blood sugar was so high. And unfortunately, this isn't just Alex. This is a very routine thing that I see. We literally... We know very well that one of the keys to minimizing the risks of heart surgery is keeping patients' blood sugar under good control in the immediate time period after the surgery, the first 48 to 70. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I never heard that. I mean, I'm not a heart surgeon, but there's a, there's a correlation between, how, uh, between their, the, their blood sugar after 48 hours after surgery and 
their continuing long-term well-being? Yes, there's a very good correlation uh, between the blood sugar control right around the time of surgery and complications that can occur. Infections Holy being smokes. very high on that list. So, because of that, we oftentimes... Just, I'm doing a face palm here. This one just... This just... I... Oh, my gosh. Okay, sorry. Um, please continue. Yeah, and we could go into that, you know, a little bit deeper. But, you know, it makes a lot of sense because we know the damaging effects that high blood sugar has on the body. So, one of the things we commonly do after surgery after heart surgery, is we will have patients on insulin continuously via an IV for, you know, the first day or two after surgery. And even patients who aren't overtly diabetic oftentimes require that. And that's and just to is, keep their blood sugar down? That is to keep their blood sugar down. But I routinely walk in the morning after surgery, and my patients are up and eating, which is great to see, except the food in front of them is usually a high-carbohydrate meal because we have become so focused on low-fat supporting heart health that we end up substituting a lot of carbohydrates into that food to make it palatable. And so we are literally, you know, the patient is eating carbohydrates, which immediately get converted to sugar in their blood while we are giving them an insulin drip a medicine continuously to lower the blood sugar. Wow. There's got to be some enterprising legal beagle out there who can say, oh, you came up with an infection after heart surgery and they fed you carbs? Let's see if we can get that fixed. I'm sorry. I, I'm, <laughs> this stuff just drives me nuts. Okay. If you don't mind, I want to read a quote that I pulled right from this chapter. It just, I think it, it encapsulates the lunacy of this system. And, uh, and then just get you to, to maybe, maybe just expand on it. So here's the quote. This is from chapter three of uh, Stay Off My Operating Table. Hospital compensation is built around disease treatment, not prevention. Food companies and pharmaceutical companies are deeply embedded in medical education. Together, they all built the system around recurring treatment of disease. Everything relies on those institutions, food companies and pharmaceutical companies, on them funding, on their funding and guidance. The entire system would break if we shifted priorities from treatment. To prevention. The entire system would break if we shifted priorities from treatment to prevention. Holy smokes. Yeah, that is a was a very eye-opening revelation to me, to be honest. And it struck me deeply, you know, because it's not something that really gets focused on. So unpack that for us. We've got food companies. We've got pharmaceutical companies. We've got the medical education system. We've got funding for research. And we've got hospitals built around 
treatment, not prevention. Just unpack that whole thing. How's it all fit together? Yeah. Explain the pieces and then explain how they all fit together. Yeah. One of the things that has occurred, you know, over the past 50 or so years is, you know, medical research, medical education uh, are both very expensive prizes. It costs a lot of money to educate a doctor, and it costs a lot of money to do the science that goes into establishing the care that we deliver as doctors. And in the United States, you know, the research part of it used to be largely funded by the government. But, you know, the amount of funding that was available to the government has decreased over time. And it sort of makes sense that the ones that stepped in for that, you know, they are a capitalistic society. And so the pharmaceutical companies that were ultimately going to benefit from the science stepped in and took over the funding of the science for the large part. But unfortunately, you know, that ends up having an influence on the science that is done and on the science that ends up getting funded and ultimately published, and then goes into the recommendations that get passed along. Now, the pharmaceutical company and the food industry took it another step forward. And what they started doing was providing a large amount of the funding that goes to the organization that doctors are part of and that doctors rely on for their continuing education once they graduate from we're all familiar with the medical meetings, you know, doctors travel around or now, you know, virtually attend these meetings to keep up to date on the latest, you know, science and development around medicine. And it turns out that the societies that put on those meetings are largely funded by the pharmaceutical and the food industry. And as one would probably expect, they then get to influence the types of things that get presented at those meetings. And, you know, the journals, uh, which are sort of an offshoot of those meetings in those societies, these things all indirectly or directly get influenced by where the funding comes from. So that is a big problem in our medical system. I, you know, I can see a way to explain how all of this is utterly benign. Um, you know, I'm a pharmaceutical company. Uh, of course it makes sense for me to, to sponsor these meetings of the um, American association of whatever. But I, I believe in health and science and blah, blah, blah. What you, the, the story that you're describing is far darker than that. It, it's not just this, this benign arm's length relationship between those who deliver medical care and the pharmaceutical companies and the food companies and the medical establishment. I mean, the, the uh, medical education establishment. You're you're describing something that it's almost as if the whole thing was designed 
to keep people coming back and paying for their products, whatever those products have to be, regardless of the health that, or lack of health that those products, the consumption of those products results in. I don't have any problem saying this because I'm not a doctor and they can't beat me up. Uh, so, so the food companies and the pharmaceutical companies Explain the food companies, the pharmaceutical companies, things. I, I, I can see that. We're in this time when we don't, all our inst- institutions are violating our trust consistently, but the food companies is a little less obvious. Do they actually get involved in medical education funding? The first thing we need to realize is that you know, the food industry and the pharmaceutical industry are intertwined. A lot of the same entities, uh, you know, own, have interest in both of these things. So, you know, that that is one thing to realize. Um, the food company, I would say, the food companies were sort of pulled into the health field, maybe unintentionally. So, again, back in the, you know, 1970s, the 1980s, when we were dealing with this epidemic of obesity and heart disease and the vision, you know, was that, you know, we needed to launch food guidelines, tell people how to eat in order to improve their health. And I think that mission was, you know, initially, uh, you know, it, it was designed to be beneficial. And so the U S dietary guidelines were, planned, and then they were released. But it was going to require a major change in the foods that we ate. Uh, You know, at the time, the thought was that going to a low-fat diet was going to benefit our health. And so the food companies were then approached, essentially, by the government and told, we have to make more of these low-fat foods. You know, we have to make foods that are going to fit within these guidelines that we think are going to benefit people's health. And the food industry, of course, did what any business, you know, would do in that situation. They responded to the changing market and they started making all these low-fat foods. And unfortunately, it turned out that, you know, making all these low-fat foods and instead making them high in carbohydrates and high, you know, more processed foods has not benefited our health. But now we are at a place where it is hard for that system to change direction. And, you know, quite frankly, the food industry just, you know, has its business interests now aligned to keep that system going. I think I've mentioned in a prior episode, you know, but I'll say it again. The food industry is not concerned about keeping people healthy. It's not their mission. It's not their job. The food industry is there to get people to buy more and to increase their bottom line. And unfortunately, the way that that is done not only doesn't benefit people's health, health, but it's actively harming our health. So let's, let's do a thought experiment because this sentence, the entire system would break if we shifted priorities from treatment to prevention, just stopped me in my tracks. Let's just do a thought experiment and let's work through the various things that 
need to change and then talk about how it would break the system and you know start anywhere you want let's let's yeah, pick so- one thing let's say you're king for a day and you can fix this thing and then let's talk about what it's going to break right so let's look at hospitals or you know hospitals even though you know most hospitals are considered to be non a nonprofit organization, the reality is is that hospitals you know need to do all the things that other businesses need to do. They need to you know pay to keep the lights on and pay the employees and you know um, all of the you know expenses that go into running a hospital. And the only way that a hospital is going to make income is by having patients in the hospital bed. So if we shifted our system and all of a sudden, you know, everyone was healthy, we would have a lot less need for hospitals and hospitals would be losing a lot of money. Doctors currently get paid largely based on doing things. So these are things like procedures, these are seeing patients in their office. And the more things they do, the more that they get paid is the way that the system is currently set up. And so, again, if patients are healthier, and don't require doctors to do as much for them. There's going to be less money to pay the doctors. You know, the doctors are going to get paid less under the current system. Okay. There have been there have been attempts to change this. There have been things introduced to try and get physicians, for instance, paid more based on the quality of the care they deliver and the health of their patients. But those efforts have floundered. Again, it's a very large system that we're trying to change, and things don't change quickly. Right. So, unfortunately, all the incentives in the current system really work against patients being healthy. And even another sort of corruption of the system that plays a part in all this is that the patients themselves don't necessarily have any direct incentive to health. <laughs> because we've developed this system where, you know, everyone pays for insurance somehow, you know, whether it's their employer is paying it for them or they're paying for it directly. But, you know, your insurance costs are are pretty much fixed. You know, you pay your monthly premium into your insurance plan. And so if you as the patient and are spending a lot of money, you know, to take care of your health, largely we're not you're not seeing those costs directly. You know, there are co-pays and things like that that people do have some influence from it. But a lot of it you know, gets dealt with within the, within the insurance system. So even the patient doesn't have the direct financial incentive uh, to, to remain healthy. Now, hopefully people want to be healthy and they feel better when they're healthy. And that would be a good incentive to remaining healthy. But again, patients are within this whole system that is not designed around them being healthy. And it, it causes a lot of the problems that I see every day. So if if 
we, the patients, actually felt it in our pocketbooks more when we were engaged in unhealthy practices. That might be an incentive yes, for the I patients, think- I guess, but it still wouldn't do anything to the system itself, which, which is, I'm, I'm struggling to come to grips with that very first story about Alex and his plate full of high-carb foods. I can remember when I visit friends or family in the hospital and see the meals they were being served, being horrified that, that the quality of the food that they were getting in a hospital was so bad. I mean, I'm not a nutritionist, but, you know, gee. I know, well, I, I know not to eat some of this stuff. Yeah, you know, and the reality is, is that that food that gets served to them in the hospital is, you know, dictated by the U.S. dietary guidelines. So, you know, the food that gets served in the hospital has to be within those parameters. Well, surely the, there's chiefs of staff out there who, who know these guidelines are, are garbage and can tell their tell their care providers, Hey, don't, don't do this. I I don't know how a hospital works. I'm just thinking, surely there's somebody who can say, Hey, we're going to feed our patients food. That's actually good for them. We're not going to feed them this crap. Or is that a problem? Yeah. You know, that, that is a problem because most physicians, most hospital administrators don't recognize that that food that they're serving is actually contributing to their patients being unhealthy. You know, it is accepted for the most part that the U.S. dietary guidelines are supporting, you know, are the healthy way to eat. This is why I'm on the mission that I'm on. We need to change these fundamental beliefs if we're going to make any advancement in the system. So suppose there was a doctor who did say that, who who knew that. I mean, like you, are you able to, to... Dictate what your patient can or can't eat when they're sitting there in the hospital. Is that something that you have the authority to do? Um, not, you know, not uh, not to the extent that I wish I did. You know, I can order. You know, so there is a certain menu of choices that I have when I'm ordering. You know, I, I don't order the food for my patients, but I di- I do put an order in as to what type of diet they should be on. And there are some types of diets that are served within the hospital that are supposed to be designed to support, you know, different health conditions. Uh Um, But again, the prevailing thought in medicine is that patients with heart disease should be on a low fat diet. So the heart healthy diet is a low fat diet, which, you know, therefore has to be a high carbohydrate diet. Uh, they don't really have a low carb, what I would consider to be a low carbohydrate dietary option in most hospitals. So what you're telling me is that they, the, the hospital cafeteria, the people who provide food, I don't know what you call it in the hospital, just give you a couple of choices from column A and a couple of choices from column B. And that's just the way it is. Right, because again, they have to, you know, the food that they serve has to be within the framework of the U.S. dietary guide. So there's a little bit of leeway in, in you know, some of the things. You, know, you can have a little bit more salt or a little less salt. You can have, you know, 
low fat versus kind of, you know, lower fat or, you know, the standard sort of low fat dietary, uh, you know, guidelines meals. But, you know, for instance, I couldn't, you know, order meals that mirror the way I eat in the hospital. And it's a just bit, not, it's just simply not an it's, option. It's simply not an option, you know, and a, and a little bit of another sort of inside, uh, you know, information, I guess that I'll give out is I don't eat in the hospital. I do not go to the, you know, if my only choice is eating from the hospital cafeteria, because realize that the employees and the, you know, the visitors, you know, are getting served the same food that the patients are. Really. Um, and, if my only choice is eat in the hospital or not eat, I don't eat. I fast. And that's one of, you know, that's one of the advantages wow. of, of my sort of metabolic health uh, lifestyle is that I can, you know, I can fast for the 12 hours or 16 hours that I might be, you know, in the hospital. Okay. Okay. I'm becoming, I'm slowly becoming a convert and I, I don't mean this facetiously. I've, I've, been suspicious about the medical establishment for a long, long time. I am now understanding more of why I have to take care of myself. The thought of actually having to go into the hospital to be taken care of, it sounds like that's a really not good place for most of the, the things that, uh, that people end up in the hospital for. All right, I'm 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 so depressed now. I want to end this. <laughs> oh. Okay, well, let's wrap this one up, Doctor O. Um, I wish this was a happier one, but but the it sounds like the gospel of getting metabolically healthy has a, a tremendous amount of force and power behind it, even if the medical establishment, the pharmaceutical companies, the food companies. And the education uh, institutions are arrayed against us. Yeah. And, you know, to, to sort of wrap it up on a more positive note, you know, I do want to say that, you know, physicians as individuals are not aiming to harm the patient. They're unfortunately stuck within the system. Yeah. But more and more, you know, there are physicians like myself who are coming to realize these things and coming to realize that there are better ways to take care of their patients. And we are trying to push for, you know, the changes that need to occur uh, to, you know, get this system more focused on keeping people healthy. Keep people healthy. Well, I want to remind our listeners that Dr. Ovedia has a telemedicine practice as well. You don't have to have a heart attack or need a quadruple bypass in order to have his care. Go to his website, ovadiahearthealth.com, and just check it out and uh, start yourself on the road to metabolic health. I've started that myself, and uh, darn glad I have. Thank you, Dr. O. We'll talk to you next time. Chances are you wouldn't be listening to this podcast if you didn't need to change your life and get healthier. So take action right now. Book a call with Dr. Ovadia's team. One small step in the right direction is all it takes to get started. Contact us at ifixhearts.com slash talk. That's ifixhearts.com slash talk.